Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Views on View. It's been a couple weeks. My name is Steve Edwards. I am the host with the Face for Radio and the voice for being a mime, but I'm still your host. Flying with me today on my panel, I have Mr. David Neal. How are you doing, David? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me back on the show. Always good to have you. Always good to have you. For those of you who might not have heard, David is our resident artist. Um who can draw things that I can only dream about. But he's uh, got his book of dad jokes and uh, does a lot of artist stuff with his uh, presentations. If you want to listen to last week's episode, we talked about that. And you can get the skinny there. Our guest today coming to us from Cairo, Egypt, is Mr. Abdel Rahman Awad. How are you doing, Abdel? Rahman? Do you go Abdel or Abdel Rahman? I would go Abdel Rahman. But yeah, I'm Abdel all Rahman. Good. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm good, Steve. Uh, thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. Uh, today, we are here to talk about V-Validate, which is something, if you're in the view world, you've probably heard of in terms of form validation, which is something that's so easy, a piece of cake in HTML, right? Anyway, uh, before we get into V-Validate, why don't you just tell us about yourself, why you're famous, uh, what you do, and so on and so forth. Sure. I'm not sure if I'm famous, but uh, I am from Cairo, Egypt. I started off as a back-end engineer. I did a lot of PHP, Laravel. Then I moved on to Node.js, which naturally I landed in the front-end world because of that. Um, then I started trying out new frameworks to learn Angular, uh, some React, but I really liked Vue. And that was view 0.12 right before it was the first release. And oh wow, I feel, yeah, I fell in love with it. So I started using it in my projects, and then eventually 1.0 came out. I started creating view validator around that time because yeah, I needed something like that. It was really early in the ecosystem then, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here. So and I stayed with front end ever since and. It's been four years as a front-end engineer now. Right. Do you want to give a shameless plug about uh, where you work and where you use Vue on your day-to-day? Of course. Uh, I work in Rasail. It's a company where it allows you, it's a SaaS app that allows companies to communicate with their customers using uh, WhatsApp. So it's an inbox slash uh, campaigns manager slash automations on bots. And it's all built with Vue.js. All with Vue.js. All righty. Um, now, what's interesting, a couple things we'll touch on your history. Uh, interesting that you started PHP and Laravel because that's my day-to-day is I work in a very large Vue app with Laravel. And then I have another project that I do and maintain that uses Laravel with Vue and Inertia.js, if you're familiar with Inertia.js, which is completely awesome. Um and so, yeah, I came from the similar world, similar world. Now, what's interesting is that most anybody that I've talked to, uh, when they talk about when they came into the Vue ecosystem and started using it, usually it's around at least 2.0. You're the first person I've ever talked to that's using it like pre 1.0 or even pre 2.0. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. You can, you can blame Jeffrey Way for that. Like he did a course on 0.12. Did he really? Okay. Yeah. And I started then, he updated it, and I relearned it again. And here we are. 
Yeah, he, uh, I had about almost exactly a year ago, I was able to get on Taylor Otwell. Um, and part of the discussion was about how, at least for me, I started seeing when I would Google uh, issues, as all developers do, you know, how, what's this bug or how do I do this or that? I was getting a lot of Laracast forums links. And I was like, okay, why am I seeing all this view stuff in Laravel? Um, and so, you know, we've talked about that whole history of um, with Taylor about how his famous tweet about React is a mess. I'm going to try Vue or React is something. I don't remember what it is. Um, and how that got him into the Vue world and how tightly integrated Laravel is with Vue, which is to me is awesome. Um, and I know Jeffrey, um, when Inertia first came out, he did a course on inertia and then he ended up converting his whole site to inertia and then doing more course on inertia. So that's sort of been uh, uh, fascinating to watch. Did you do any, you ever use any other PHP frameworks or CMSs? Like, you know, WordPress is a real common one for PHP or is Laravel your real starting point into PHP? I'm not sure if it's a framework. I used something, if I remember correctly, called Smarty. I'm not sure if it's, a framework of it's a, just a templating engine or is PHP. I think it's Smarty PHP or something. Oh, then I jumped immediately yeah, to Laravel. Yeah, yeah, okay. Then, then I jumped immediately to Laravel 5.0 and it was beta then, but I started learning uh, on Laracast as well. So, lots right. of shout outs. Yeah, Smarty has a true, I would say, late 1990s, early 2000s vibe on their website for sure. I recognize it. It's like a 960 grid layout or something like that. But uh, yeah, it's really old. It's really old. So, so how, how did you how did you make that jump from Laravel to Node.js? What was the uh, kind of the motivation for that? Uh, we mostly wanted to try a few things. We were experimenting with a lot of technologies uh, in my company then called Bayonet. We tried, we wanted to try multiple different things like WebSockets or real time and stuff like that. And it just seemed like the better uh, tool to use then for that kind of applications. Also, we wanted to try NoSQL. So MongoDB went really well hand in hand with. Node.js, so it's just an experiment. And we tested a few things, and we really liked the results with uh, Node.js, although we did a lot of, you know, we used Express. There wasn't really a framework like Laravel that helps you stitch things together uh, like Laravel does, so it was really hard to ship applications with it, but it was mostly experiments. But I liked JavaScript because of that, because of Node, because of how Mm -hmm. it seemed to work, and are you still using Express or are you using some other uh, back-end system today? I don't write a lot of uh, back-end Node.js applications at the moment, but when I do, I use uh, Nitro, which is a new, new-ish kind of framework. It's really, it's really nice. I used Nest.js before it, but it's mostly Express or Nitro because I don't write a lot of back-end, not like a production-ready stuff. Okay. Yeah, I know Next has something called Nitro in it. Is that I'm guessing that's yes. different? It's the same one. It's the same framework that's powering Next. So Next is built on Nitro, and Nitro you can use on its own. So Oh, it's a standalone tool. Okay, I see. So is it similar to Express in terms of that uh API layer? It's way better. It's way better because it uh it does some kind of uh 
you know how Next uh, Pages thing work, where you mm-hmm. have, you generate routes based on the Pages directory. Nitro does the same for your API endpoints. So you just oh. create a file, and that's your endpoint. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I remember when when um, uh, how do I say when Node was sort of becoming a thing, or at least when I was becoming aware of it, uh, or in Mongo in particular, I was in the Drupal world at the time, and and there was a couple of people that were really pushing uh, to allow Drupal to use a Mongo type database, um, and. Uh, so I started digging in that, and Node itself, no, uh, excuse me, Mongo University had a uh, course on um, Mongo for Node developers. And so I went through and learned, you know, a little bit of Node and how to query and, and a lot of the basics and stuff, um, but never really went down the Node path too much. Now, my day-to-day, my app, GovTribe, is a, we have a huge Mongo database, huge just because the amount of data that we take in that we make available to our users um, that we host on Atlas. So it's been interesting there sort of combine these different worlds uh, in that from Laravel up until a few months ago, a guy named Jen Seegers maintained the uh, MongoDB integration for Laravel to Mongo is uh, Jen Seegers MongoDB. And then, so it was really getting a lot of use. Well, then he wasn't keeping up with it. Things weren't getting committed and changed. And so the Laravel community took over that library. And so now it's uh, MongoDB Laravel instead of the Gen Seegers. And then they've made some changes. And I've actually been wrestling with some Laravel 10 upgrades in Mongo (laughs) for the past couple of weeks. Uh, So yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Mongo certainly has it, and that's a whole different topic that we've talked about elsewhere places. Mongo has its use cases. In some cases, it's good. In other cases, it's not so good. Um, you know, if you use it, when you have more dynamic database structure needs, then it's definitely better than, than SQL. But uh, anyway, cool. So 0.2. So let's talk about vValidate then. Um it sounds like the way you were describing it that it was sort of a scratch your own itch, right? You you've got a need, you're tired of messing around with HTML forms and form validation and so on and so forth. So you decide to write this and put it out there. So tell me how that all started. Okay, so and you know at the beginning with the view community, it wasn't really big then, so it lacked a lot of uh, what you would expect from uh, an ecosystem, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It lacked uh, localization, it lacked forms, it lacked a bunch of things, but everybody was like trying to build this kind of uh, com- community libraries or ecosystem libraries. So there was already a form a validation library. I think it was called View Validator. Yeah, and I've seen that. I have used it and I liked it at the beginning, but I didn't like the way the... To, uh, that allowed developers to extend the validators and the way that it just didn't feel, it felt really unwieldy. So I decided to, okay, I can build my own thing using my own projects. I had no plans to publish it or share it with anybody. It's just, it's a me thing, you know? So I started with a simple JS file that I put in my Laravel applications and I decided to give it like some, Syntax similar to a lot of our rules, right? You when you have this 
required pipe, uh, min, colon, eight kind of uh, string expressions for rules. So I decided to give it the same syntax. It seems easier to write, easier to extend, easier to parse, and so on. So I built that. It worked well for my sm- small projects. It worked well for my company projects at the time. And then um, I decided to give it a go and publish it. Since I just to make it easier for me to install it on other projects, so I just gave it give it a random name. I didn't really think about it. It used to be the API used to use a directive, a Vue.js directive. So directives start with the V dash the directive name. So it's V validate, and All right. that's how we split it. So that's how it got the name. I did not really think about it. So I published it and start sharing it in the Laracast community forums and. Laravel Laravel related uh, communities because that's my demographic kind of like I am a Laravel developer who wants to have this easy way to have real-time form validation uh, in my projects so I I just shared it with the people who I think would appreciate it the most and that uh, a lot of people liked it started downloads started uh, going up a lot of people started on GitHub so it went really well and then the I guess the moment where it just shot up uh, with popularity is when uh, Taylor Otwell started on GitHub so then it just got better from here in terms of popularity people started downloading it people started using it more I started getting a lot of issues and yeah that's how it started awesome so so now with any validation this is strictly front-end validation, right? And if you have a back-end, you're also going to want to do validation on your back-end because, you know, just... You I always do it. Front end. Yeah. yeah, you can't always trust it. But this gives you um, at least an, an easy way to plug in, plug into your forms and uh, and get some validation. Now, does it also do... I'm sorry, I haven't really looked through all the docs yet, but is it... Um, can you also do things like, say, auto-formatting of a field? So let's say you have a phone number field and you always want it to be in a certain format based on your locality or, you know, an email address or, you know, something like that. Does it does it provide those capabilities as well? So Vivaldi has changed a lot since... So it used to be a directive, like I said. Then it became a component, a headless component. Then it became, right now, the composition API uh, with Vue 3. So it changed a lot, and the features it offered changed with that. So back then, it was just validation with the directive. With the components, mm-hmm. it was still about validation, but it gave you some UX um, improvements, like uh, you could uh, bind some classes, you could bind some ARIA attributes, you could um, track some values. That's about it. But with uh, version 4, which is the current one for Vue 3, Composition API, it does a lot of things. It does value tracking, form handling, submissions, but it doesn't do the formatting or masking because you can really easily do it using a, another library like Vue. There is a lot of libraries. Uh, one of them is Vue Currency Input. You can import it, use your Composition API, and compose the two together. So Vue Validate Composition API can be composed with the uh, Vue Currency Input, and you get both a currency input that is validatable, submittable, and so on. Okay. 
Yeah, I'm looking at your docs here. Just curiosity, what is it? What are you using for your docs? Generate your docs. You use like Beautify or something like that, or not Beautify, but um, what's the framework, David? Uh, Astro. Oh, you're using Astro. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah I like Astro. Astro. I use that. I've used that for a static editor too, and it's it's pretty cool with what it can do. Yeah, it's really cool. What's the I'm docs curious. framework built on Vue? I can't, I'm brain farting on it now and I can't think what it was that uh, Evan had released. Uh, I'm brain farting here. But you could just plug in. Anyway. The one for the docs? Yeah. Vitpress, uh, I think. Beat, there you go. Vuepress, Vitpress. Yeah, okay. That's what I was thinking it was. But okay. Yeah, so how do you like Astro? Just side note, because I've had Fred Shot on. Uh, here and then another episode. Well, so we've talked about Astro quite extensively. I think for my use case, which is just static content, it just works amazingly. Um, uh-huh. It's really simple to use. This island architecture makes it really easy to uh, incorporate your favorite framework. So it's Vue.js for me, of course, but uh, it can be confusing at first, it can be weird at first. Right. Uh, I would say it's a little bit harder than Next at the beginning, but I really like their. Uh, I re- I think I liked having more control over my content, how it's generated, how it's t- being typed. So yeah, I really like that. But next content is just as great right now. Right. So I could switch at any moment. Really. So are you using just like uh, straight Tailwind components, or are you using Vue components within? I'm not Tailwind. Uh, just I'm sorry. Tailwind. Astro components. Yeah, I'm using a bunch of Astro components, but it's mostly for the static stuff like the site header, site uh, footer, just mm-hmm. simple components. Well, I guess the component, the article cards are, well, no, with vValidate. No, that's my blog, sorry. With vValidate, it's uh, documentation. I don't use a lot of Astro components, like none almost. It's all view components. I'm curious, as your as your open source project has evolved over the, over time with the different versions that you've and iterations that you've gone through, what are, what's been some of the challenges and, um, you know, most difficult parts of, of maintaining this project? Um, there is a lot of learnings here, but I guess I'll start from, uh, what I learned first and over, then I go to what I learned last. So what I learned first is you can't satisfy everybody, you know, like <laughs> at the beginning, yeah. I was really excited. Like my project got some attention, it got some spotlight. So I need to make as much people as, ha- as many people as happy as possible, you know? So <laughs> when everybody wanted a feature, it was like, uh, it would be cool if you can do this. And I was like, you got it and just implemented the next day. And I kept doing that for a very long time and I ended up with a really messy API because when I started writing document, like I didn't have documentation at first, it was just a readme. So I decided, yeah, it should have a documentation. And when I started writing documentation, I started to see how messy the API was. Like you could do this thing in five different ways, and none of mm-hmm. them is kind of perfect. You know, like it's really hard to write documentations, especially if the it's really easy if you are the one who is writing the library. But it's at the same time, it's hard if you are trying to explain it to somebody else because, okay, what, what, in what way I want them to write this API or this uh, 
uh, feature that they should be implementing. So that's the first thing. Don't do everything. You shouldn't even try to do everything. Like should have a clear direction of what the library should be and what to say no to and what to consider. Right. So I I learned that after version two. So I started doing that with version three. And with version four, I'm even more like aggressive with it in terms of people asking for something and tell them no, we aren't doing that and just rejecting it. Uh, for a lot of things, we can just park it like it's an enhancement, so it needs some thinking. Like I can't just say, okay, let's implement the first thing thing that comes to my mind. But no, that shouldn't work like that. So that's I guess my first um lesson. Second is people really hate breaking changes. So shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like they absolutely hate it with a passion. Like uh, we validate change a lot, like a lot across releases. So V2 to V3, that's the directive gone. That's the main way of using the library. It's completely changed. With V3 to V4, it's also completely changed because we now encourage the composition API more and the API is widely different. And the reasons are, it's not like I wanted to to do that. Sometimes it's outside of my control. For example, uh, during the transition from view one to view two, the directives are no longer instance-based. So that means I couldn't store data on a directive instance. So that means I can't use a directive uh, to maintain a field state. So that mean, meant the API had to change, and we ended up with a much better pattern with uh, headless components. But then came the composition API, which is similar to React hooks, which is a better pattern for uh, headless or provider patterns or that that kind of functionality. So, and also some internal change it made the old API impossible to implement. So that's another breaking change. But people don't understand that or try try to acknowledge that all they care about is where is the migration guide or why is this not working the way it was uh, before. And I made a lot of enemies. Like I didn't think you can make enemies oh, from wow. officers. But <laughs> Seriously? You, you, yeah, I got a lot of like angry messages. So that's interesting. But I kind of understand. It's a very, it's a huge change. But at the same time, it's uh, it's hard when you're making a library or an API, maintaining an API, and then you recognize something that you shaped. Okay, I made a mistake with this. I want to change it now so not a lot of people can rely on it you know and but mm, then if you yeah. kind of deprecate it it's a breaking change so yeah it's a, it's a tricky balance um respecting sim semantic versioning has been really uh important for 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 this project but i don't follow it to the letter like sometimes i would introduce a breaking change just because it's causing too much uh, dx issues a lot of people are complaining about it um, so I would just introduce a breaking change, put it in a change log, and it's worked well for this project so far, but it's not something I would recommend for every other project. So, yeah, I think these are my key learnings. What have you learned about uh, involving other people in the open source? And, you know, do you have, like, more folks that you can rely on to help implement features or do reviews or, you know, what are, have you been able to share some of the, the load and responsibility as the project has matured? Yeah, that's, uh, I guess I forgot about saying that as a 
learning. Like it's hard to foster a community around the library, building a core team is extremely hard. So far, I'm the only guy that's been constantly mm. on the project. Uh, during times, I had some people be around for a month or two before jumping off. I'm not sure what I should be doing. Like it's it's a hard thing. Like people are interested in the project, they keep contributing to it, and so a lot of them once they got the features they wanted in, they simply uh, didn't uh, right. continue contributing. I tried to create an organization, invited a few people, but they uh, that were active in the library, but they said they aren't. They don't want the. Um, they don't want to be tasked with maintaining the library. They want yeah. to be doing it whenever they can, and they want this freedom of sorts. So yeah, they don't want the res- responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. So I failed completely in that regard in fostering a community around it. And yeah, I'm the only guy working on it actively at the moment. But I do appreciate every single contribution that comes in. Yeah, I was looking at the uh, GitHub repo, and it looks like a lot of people have contributed um, to, like, I guess, pull requests or bug fixes or or whatever or feature ideas. So that that's great to see. I wonder, um, just curious, how have you maintained like energy and motivation to continue working on the project if it's pretty much just you doing it? Um, I think this is going to sound cheesy, but it's because I like it. Like I like writing code. So after work, I would just open up VValidate and say, okay, we need to fix this and this. Sometimes I don't have any energy at all during the week, so I would maybe contribute on the weekends only. Sometimes I don't have any energy for an entire month, and sometimes I have, like, I here in Egypt, you serve in the military for all males serve in the military. So I maintained Vivalidate during my service in the military, which was really hard because I don't have internet, so I had to visualize what wow. I wanted to do. Go on the When I get a vacation for about four days, then I come type it down, pull, pull request it, go back to the military, and so on. It was wow. really, it's because I like it, I think. It's because I like it. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting listening to you is is what you really stated is common knowledge for people who maintain open source libraries. Um, you know, you can't make everybody happy. You got to have a plan. You got to stick to it. It's hard getting contributors. People um, make assumptions and and sort of have uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They sort of assume that you owe them something as users of your library as compared to the other way around, especially those that you know that don't contribute to it. So yeah, it's nothing nothing too surprising there. And there, you know, as you said, there are users that. Um, will contribute, but only when they really need it. You know, I can, you know, just thinking of my own development history at times, I've been using a project or a library or something. And so I'll contribute to it. And then once as my day to day, I'm off that or even on a side project, not using it, then I really don't have any interest of going back and contributing. But it sounds like you've done a pretty good job in terms of a balance 
you know, I could see it for me, you know, if I'm working all day on view and then I want to go spend my evening hours doing some more view, that can lead to some pretty bad burnout. <laughs> so, you know, striking a, a good balance, you know, work-life balance is, is definitely an important thing. It sounds, you know, if you take off a week here or a month there or something like that and come back to it, then, hey, great. And you can always say if people are screaming, hey, what about this? And what about that? You can say, hey, patch is welcome. You know, it's always the classic open source yeah. phrase. If you want to contribute something, I am more than happy to review it and, and check it out, but uh, I need some help from you. So, so yeah, that's definitely uh, uh, just common experience across the board that I've heard from open source over the years, over the last, you know, 20 years that I've been involved in yeah. open source. What's, what's been something that um, you feel like is, one of the most interesting uses of your library that you maybe came across or heard about or, you know, discovered, you know, that someone was using your, your code to do something that you, you wouldn't have imagined. Yeah. That's an amazing question because I have an exactly one case that lives rent free in my head because of how <laughs> mind blowing it was for me. So when people come to me and say where well, they are building multi-step forums, they are building uh, uh, like this state management form thingy. Yeah, this is what I designed the library for. Like, mm -hmm. You should be able to do these things. It's impressive and all, but it is possible. Like, I can see it happening. But one guy decided to use it on the backend, decided to use it on Node.js, and it works, apparently. I never tried it. I never thought it, like, to even imagine trying it, but it, apparently it does. It works well for them, so that blew my mind. So they're doing form validation in Node.js on the back end? Yes, they are using vValidate to validate the requests that are coming from the uh, route to their endpoints, which, yeah, it's possible, but I never imagined it. Hmm. Interesting. So they, they're just using the API then, obviously. Yes. Nothing that's grabbing the validate rendering. function. Right. The, yeah validate function, the rule system, and that's what they need. And yeah, it's definitely possible, but I never never considered doing that. Well, I guess it makes sense. I mean, isn't that the whole purpose of isomorphic JavaScript? You know, JavaScript, one language to rule them all and in the darkness yeah, bind course. them, to borrow a quote from a famous book. Um, so that's that's awesome. You know, it's... it's yeah, one of the things I've discovered... Uh, over the years when I put out, you know, a project or an application, um, one of the benefits of doing, you know, getting testing outside of yourself is it's amazing the use cases that people will find that you never would have considered in your head, in your limited scope, right, of use. And But people, oh, great, I can use it here. This is great. Yeah, sometimes people send me emails about something they are building and I would jump on a call with them to see what, if it's like too interesting, I would just tell them, okay, let's schedule a call. Let me see what you are building with it. And I learned a lot from people, watching people use the library and build uh, with it and it definitely influenced my decisions moving forward. Like, okay, this API doesn't feel, needs some adjustments because it's, they used it pretty horribly because it forced them to be used uh, pretty horribly. So, yeah. Is there a, a project or story of of someone using your your component uh, to that you're 
like really proud to be associated with that that uh, feel good about having con- contributed to some project uh like famous apps or projects uh, there is yeah. a lot so there's this app called view telescope it's built by the nux team and you basically can search if any app in the wild is using a certain view library and when I looked through it using Vivaldit, I saw all kinds of crazy, like I wouldn't have imagined people, these companies using it. Uh, can I say some of them or I'm not sure? If... I don't know. Well, if they're available uh, in View Telescope, they're certainly public then. Yes. Yeah, so Blizzard apparently, apparently is using it in their account pages. And I verified nice. that. I reached out to them. They didn't reply. So um, there is also. I think Hyundai India or something. So a bunch of there is a lot of big projects using Vivalidator. So using View Telescope. I'm can't remember what there is a lot of big names there, but don't remember a lot of them. Just that Blizzard because I like their games. So yeah, yeah, that's cool. So you had mentioned I wanted to, there was one technical thing I wanted to ask you about just in terms of composition API. So one of the things you had mentioned was uh, you had to go away from directives because you couldn't save state, I believe, or something like that within it. So now you can do that with the Composition API, correct? Use a composable because you can store yes. state within a, a composable? Yes. So the way it evolved is since you no longer had state with directives, then the next best thing is components. That's version 3 with uh, Vvalidate version 3. But then... We got the combo, but that was just a hack around not being able to be able to have reactive data that's de associated from components. But that's possible now with the composition API. So it kind of also evolved to using that composition API instead of components to drive this functionality. It makes it much easier to integrate into your components than, say, a headless component. And it's true of the same thing in the React world. like certain hooks or certain functionalities are easier to build using hooks or custom hooks than with uh, headless components because of how the whole slots thing work. If you are using a headless view component or even a headful view component and you have uh, like slot props and you want to use, you couldn't move these slot props to the script deck. So you had no control over them. You had to make some nasty hacks to make it work. But that's like the slow props wasn't really meant for mutating stuff. It's mostly meant for reading stuff. So with the composition API, that's all, I think, solved. So you can compose this validation logic, this value tracking logic, submission logic into your component, and uh, it should just work. So that's why it changed a lot uh, along with Vue.js uh, available API. So were there any other... Uh, so with, with Vue 3, did you have to... Did, was it like a full rewrite of the library? I know like Beautify has done that where they full, did a full rewrite to incorporate a lot of the V3 changes or was it just a few minor changes or how much did that impact your library? Um, initially, I thought I was fine just changing a few bits there and just keep the headless co- component API because there is no need to break everything for everyone, right? But then uh, I think Vue Alpha release came out and it just like changed the one thing I was relying on. So <laughs> I, had to, I have to explain how Vue 3 used to work. So it worked by 
uh, checking the VDOM tree. So it, it checked the slot and then it starts searching for the VModel directive. And once, once it finds it, then that's the node that, that's the input node. That's what you want to validate. So it worked like that by searching the DOM tree. With VU3, it was working until they decided to drop directive names from the VDOM uh, nodes. So I could no longer find the VModel directive, which just that it's impossible now to have the same API. So I had to go back to the uh, to the board and replan everything, see what I can do, what I can do. Then I experimented with the composition API, and it worked great. And that was the direction it needed to go. I thought about starting another library since it was that's a huge change. Like, but there is no point in starting another library because I would get another questions like why is this not migrated to Vue three? So it's the same thing. So forcing everybody to migrate is better than forcing them to move to another library. It's easier at least. So. Okay, so I'm still trying to get my head around this. I haven't got quite into the internals as you did. So you were, what did the composition API do that allowed you to get around that problem? You said it would just start using the composition API. Yes, so uh, in, like in, that's how I, I like to explain it. So before VVLD was trying to look for the vModel, right? If it can't find the vModel, then it can become the vModel. So that's what the composition API kind of does for uh, vValidate. It allows it to provide this reactive reference or refs. Mm -hmm. And then that you can use that as your model instead of creating your own model. And through that, if you change that, then vValidate knows you change the value. And then since it owns that state kind of, then it can definitely do validation, do submission, do all kinds of stuff. So you talked about how you're using headless components. Is that, is that your current implementation? No, that's the version three implementation. Version four has some headless. Yeah, version four still have some headless components just to maintain some form of backward compatibility. But uh, the main way to use vValidate version four is the composition API. Okay, so just for the curious who might not know that, what do you mean by a headless component? It's a component. Yeah, it's a component that provides you some functionality and it doesn't render anything. So there are, I think, a bunch of different kind of com- like definitions for it. Some people call it renderless components right. because headless components are now like unstyled components, right? So right. it's kind of yeah. uh, the definitions like back then, I, I think I thought of them as headless components because they don't have any elements to render. They just render whatever you put inside them, right? Uh, inside their slots. So regardless of what they are named, I think the most correct one is renderless components or provider components. Uh, regardless of that, it's just, um, it, so you put your stuff inside its slot and it offers you the functionality through uh, scooped slots. So scooped slot props are like certain data it passes to your slot, like the value you should bind to, the um, classes that you can bind uh, to your elements, and various functions like validate, uh, sit value, maybe sit uh, certain flags like sit touch true stuff like that. But you, what you were using those forwards away, then you can define your state values in there and handle your state management yes. since you'd lost that, right? Okay. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, the renderless components still works because it's still the same thing, but the composition is just much better because uh, I think the main problem was people struggled with the uh, scoped slots. Like, okay, I have the value in the template. How can I move it to my script? I want to do some arbitrary logic on that uh, value. Like, I want to format it. I want to submit it to an API. I want to do various things with it. So that was really like almost impossible to do with uh, scooped slots without some uh, really like black magic view, JS black magic like function, and that function captures the reference and weird stuff like that. But but that's just a hack. Like uh, you shouldn't rely on that. But that's true for all renderless uh, components in Vue.js. That's there. Like it's not something specific to be validate. It's just how this pattern works. You can't move stuff to your script. So the composition API already lives in your script, so you can easily move stuff to the template because the template uses whatever in your script. So that's why it's the better way to do it now. It's why I recommend using it over anything else in the library or the Vue.js ecosystem. So you're on, you said version, so version four of vValidate is corresponds to v3, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Um, so do you have a roadmap or are you, where are you going with the, that anything down the road or are you just sort of adding things as, as the need arises? Yeah, exactly like that. I'm just winging it in a way, you know, I have some <laughs> long-term goals like uh, multi-step forms. I need to support it in some capacity, uh, value masking or formatting. I need to support some form of it. It doesn't have to do the entire thing. So these are long-term goals. I haven't decided how to yet uh, move towards them. But what I'm focusing mostly on is um, the DX of building forms, like how hard it is or how easy it is to get a form running and mm-hmm. hooking your your stuff to it. Because a lot of libraries started emerging with Vue 3. So each library needs to find this kind of like a niche audience or a niche um, way of doing th- of doing forms. Um, so vValidate, I think, is more geared towards those who don't use third-party components. It supports them. You can validate whatever you want with vValidate. You can support an empty span or an empty div if you really want to. But uh, or vitify components, uh, quasar components, whatever you, you really want. But it's not optimized for that. It's mostly optimized for people building their own components. Like you are building your own component library with a little bit the like a form component library, input text, selects, and stuff like that. So it kind of abstracts a lot of the things uh, related to building forms, like value tracking. Um, you can't really rely on v-modeling every single input you have. Uh, it's just akin to having a listener on every single input. So that can become hardware, building a really large form or a dynamic form. So having a declarative way of saying, okay, this is my field. I want it to be automatically tracked just because I have it in my template. So I think that's a good, like something we can discuss first before I delve further into this, which is uh, you had always had two schools of thought when it comes to forms. So it had this imperative way of writing forms and declarative way of writing forms. So we validate always lied in the camp of it being declarative. So it means 
the forms are declared in the in the template in the HTML, uh, doesn't uh, live in the script um, as other imperative libraries would do. Like and a good example of an imperative library is Viewlidate. But at the same time, um, Viewlidate is mostly about validating anything really. So any value, arbitrary values, doesn't have to be related to inputs. But that disallows it or prevents it from providing certain abstractions. Like, should is the field touched? Sure. It depends on how it can uh, know that information. Or if the developer can hook up that information to view it, it becomes harder then. But with uh, a declarative library, it already lives in your template. It has access to your template. You declare the value just by typing the field. So it kind of can uh, track itself. It kind of can track all sorts of events. It's a li- I know it's, a, it's hard to imagine over like just saying it like this, but uh, it's... Uh, it's mostly about these two schools of thought, like having template-based forms and um, imperative-based forms. Now, with Composition API, the lines are becoming really blurry because the composition forces you to write stuff into the script and move them to the template, uh, if I may say so. But at the same time, we validate main optimization or main focus is it allows you to build your own declarative forms through the composition API. So that's how the direction shifted. It's not a, a, an imperative library, as in it allows you to validate stuff. It still allows you to build forms. It still allows you to build inputs. But through the composition API, through a declarative API, if you want to um, make the most out of it. Sorry, I went on uh, long. Oh, no, not a problem. Not a problem. So now one of the things I was looking at your docs and noticing is, you know, and you were just talking about, you know, how your forms are generated and stuff is uh, it looks like you can, one, you can integrate with, uh, was it Formulate? I think looks like you have some good, which is a uh, another uh, library that helps generate your forms. I think it looks like it's your JavaScript, right? You define your forms in JavaScript and then it, it renders your form for you. And then you have some pretty good uh, yeah, integration with, with your library so they can validate those forms. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, but that library is uh, discontinued. Uh, it's not uh, longer uh, and it's no longer maintained. Ah. But it used to work like that. You would you define a that library allowed you to define forms dynamically using a schema, and then you could have a validation provider that could be Vulidate or Vvalidate. So that's how it worked. But unfortunately, okay. they, it's not it's no longer being worked on. Oh, bummer. Okay, because you still have it in your docs. And then uh, I think is that the only option? It looks like you can do it yourself. Insight with was it formula form view late? I'm looking at your your uh, build a form generator section in your docs. Was formulate the only way to do it, or can you do it with v validate as well? Using just generate using a schema. V validate doesn't really give you like a way to make it easier for you, like how uh, form violate used to do. But you okay, can pretty much come up with your own schema and build it with v validate. 
Right. Yeah, I used to uh, when I my very first foray into working with JavaScript frameworks uh, was with Angular One. I think what they refer to as Angular JS now, and it was with a a uh, platform called Form.io, and that's what they did. It was uh, uh, JavaScript defined form rendering capabilities, and there was all kind of really cool functionality uh, that you could. Uh, that you could use behind the scene, you could really do some crazy dynamic stuff with forms and with their backend that used Mongo. It was initially just Angular, but then they extrapolated it to make it generic so that you could use anything. But the idea of, of form rendering based on strictly on JavaScript schemas is is pretty cool. Uh, a little more complex than you know just binding your form in your single file component, but it gives you a lot of really neat functionality once you uh, sort of grasp it and get your head around it. All right. So before we move on to picks, is there anything else you wanted to cover about vValidate uh, that we haven't talked about yet? Um, I think just discussing the uh, the current ecosystem of the Vue.js form libraries and how it's not like a comparison. It's mostly a summary of what it, what the landscape looks like. So we have three, I think, main libraries right now. Um, vValidate is one of them. We have FormKit and we have uh, Vulidate, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. So Vulidate, like I said, imperative validation, it's mostly focused on validating values. It's up to you to hook it up to everything you need to. And then there is FormKit, which is providing you with components that you can style, uh, extend, and they have a wide range of components that make you, it's really easy to build a form with a form kit. Like you drop a bunch of components and that's it. That's your form. But it's more of a, for, a component library than a form validation library. Right? So that's uh, it's because of how they think. I think in a recent talk in Vue.js Conf in US, they said their philosophy is uh, deciding what about forms that can be abstracted, right? And they think forms should always live in the template, so they are declarative in the same way that Vivalate likes declarative forms. And but they think that more like it's hard to abstract certain concepts uh, uh, from forms without inputs or without components. Like you need to have your input it has a lot of things uh, state related to it, so. What's the point of abstracting just the minimal stuff about that without giving you the whole thing or a lot of the things that you might need, like minimum length, maximum length, and other stuff? But for Vivalidate, it's uh, I think it's that's my like personal opinion. Is I think having a form component library is the same issue that faces us every time you build a, a huge app or an app that's meant to last a long time. It's uh, how much can I extend it and how much can I override it, right? Overriding styles, basically, is age-old problem of uh, component libraries. Um, even with headless components or unstyled components, you have to adhere to the most of the HTML, right? And then you are forced to style that structure. It's You can customize some stuff, you can extend some stuff, but you can't really write something from scratch that... Um, that's like the freedom uh, it takes away from you. Now, Vivalidate kind of offers you just state. It's up to you how you hook it up. 
So it kind of optimizes for people building their own components. So if you are someone who is looking to build a component library, then Vivalidate is going to be a better option than the others. However, if you want to have forms and get up quickly, ship something that's really high quality in really quick way, then FormKit or other libraries can do it for you. All right. So with that, we'll move to picks. Picks are the part of the show where we get to talk about anything we want to talk about within reason that's not going to get us kicked off by the FCC or something like that. Not that they monitor podcasts. Um, I will go first with the what I like to refer to as the dad jokes of the week, the high point of every episode. Um, and still missing my sound effects. Got to get off my rear and get those figured out because without the rim shots, it's just not the same. But just do your best. Imagine the rim shot in your head when I say a great joke. <clears throat> so my son asked if I was named after my dad. And I said, well, of course I was. He was born many years before me. You know, named after. So, oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and then uh, I was making a cake the other day, and my wife asked me why I put it in the oven upside down. I said, well, I was just following the instructions. It said that it, it should go into the oven at 180 degrees. I suppose That's I could have turned. I could have turned it to the side instead of upside down, and it would have been the same. But that was how I was thinking. And then finally. People say they pick their nose, but I feel like I was born with mine. So, anyway, that's it. Yeah. David, do you have any picks for us today? Oh, um, I do have a, a a timely joke from from like you know it's, it's the uh, the holidays here in the U.S. You know, with Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up. So there's a how does a gingerbread man make his bed? I've heard this, but I do not recall. With, Abdel Rahman? With, with a cookie no, sheet. Got with a cookie sheet. Very good. Very good. I will tell my son that one. He will love that one. He will love that one. Thank you. It's always good to have people add to the joke repertoire on our show. All right. Abdel Rahman, what do you have for us? Well, I don't really have any dad jokes. Um, That's okay. Kinda, we yeah. all can't be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I guess, I recently went to uh, Europe for the first time in my life. Uh, I went to give a talk in Berlin and then to Italy to give another talk there. So it was, it's my first time outside Egypt, kind of like I went to other countries, but outside the, that part of the world, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was really an amazing experience because I think, like you said before the show, I didn't get to experience it as a tourist. I experienced it as someone who, you know, I landed on a plane, figured out how to move, how to go to the destination. Mm -hmm. And without having, so luckily I had some friends there who helped me figure things out, especially the public transportation system in Berlin. Which it's weird, but I fell in love with it. It's, it's amazing. Like, it's really amazing. Yeah. Is it mostly uh, like trains, subways, or buses, or what? All what did you of that, use? and if, almost everything. Like you, if I missed my bus, there is a train on the other side of the street. If I miss that train, then I go back to the bus, and it's all like <laughs> five minutes away from each other in terms of timing. So I don't have to wait a lot. And the Google Maps integration is just amazing. Like 
I'm not sure if you, uh, like it's for us or for for my part of the world, it's non-existent as public transportation is almost non-existent. You kind of mm-hmm. have to know it to to know how it works. But as someone who's you know a strange man in a strange land, you know, you kind of right. uh, just open Google Maps and then I was like, I want to get there, and it's like, okay, just get on that bus that's going to be in front of you in two minutes. And in two minutes, it's in front of you. No delays. And if there was some delays sometimes, but the app said there is a delay because of a medical emergency, so it's three minutes late. And it's then on time. So wow. it was amazing for me. Awesome. For Italy, it was just the food. Food is amazing. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have. I have. That's one thing I'd love to experience is is the food, actually Italian food in Italy. Um, you know, I uh, I'm a Spanish speaker and grew up learning Spanish, and and you know, Mexican food is quite prevalent here in the U.S. Uh, to varying levels of quality and authenticity. And so, I had always, you know, I've always had Mexican food, tacos and burritos, and my famous favorite food had always been um, a chili relleno. And so I'd always liked that here. And then when I went to Mexico, I had a real chili reno. And it wasn't some little plat thing. It was like a big, you know, chili reno. I was like, oh my gosh, that's what they're supposed to be like. So, uh, and I was, I lived down there for, for a few months and, you know, lived in a house with a family and stuff. So got to experience quite a, a bit of non-touristy food. And ever since then, when I've come back, I've always uh, differentiated between American Mexican food and real Mexican food. Um, and it's not too often that I see a lot of the authentic stuff up here like I do. It's funny. I found one place that made a chili relleno like the one I had in Mexico. And David, you'll you'll um, understand this a little better than Abdel Rahman, but it was in a small town in Tennessee. Um, oh. You know, it wasn't anywhere down by the border. It was I can't remember the name of the town. It was years ago, but I was struck. I was like, oh. This is a great place. <laughs> I just happen to be there on business. But yeah, I know like here, you know, and you can tell me if this is true out there. Um, pizza, you know, here we have pizza. We've got pizza joints and pizza restaurants and you go anything from, you know, your thin crust pizza, something like a pizza hut to your custom places to Chicago where you have quote unquote deep dish pizza, which is really thick. Um, now, my understanding from what I've heard from people who've been to Italy and had real pizza is that it's very different. You know, it's, it's pretty thin crust. It's not this whole thick crust thing with injecting stuff into the crust, you know, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, thin, uh, really thin. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of like, I expected more, you know, like I had pizza in it. Right. You know, I went <laughs> to the birthplace of, pizza i'm gonna have the mother fall pizzas you know like that kind of but i just had really good pizzas but yeah kind yeah, of I, I would be considered a heretic because i my favorite pizza is what i call pine and swine which is canadian bacon and pineapple and i'm i'm gonna you know people will call me heretics for for liking that but i'm gonna assume they didn't have that those kinds of toppings in, in no, Italy, right? never found them maybe we'll get like i think people told me you will get kicked out for asking <laughs> like, there is a pizza like this what yeah. you insult my food right yes. i could totally <laughs> what kind of topping what kind of things did you have on on your pizza when you were there uh it was mostly cheese uh, and uh, i think it's margarita cheese uh, mm-hmm. or 
bunch of other types of cheese. And then I had, uh, there was this really weird small shop near my hotel, which I mean, weird as in weird pizzas. They had this square pizzas, not circular. And you what? can ask for, yes. And you ask for how much you can slice from that big square pizza. So you kind of have like a mix of multiple pizzas with multiple huh. flavors, multiple toppings, multiple everything. So I had like a pizza with a cucumber on it. It was really weird. It was, it was good. Uh, I found there was this potato pizza and there was this, can't remember what it was, but they were all fantastic, but no fruits allowed on pizzas there, apparently. So, oh, Boy, that sounds good. And here, me thinking, I thought pizzas always had to be round. I'm, I'm shocked that they would use another shape. <laughs> for for yeah, sure. Did they have, as well. Do they do like meats? You know, like we always have pepperoni or ham. Yes, or they have like a lot of meats, but because I can't eat pork meat, so they kind of right. have... Uh, I kind of had to avoid them. So chicken, sure. uh, beef, if they had it, but yeah, a lot right. of pork meat. Right. Interesting. Oh, I still want to try that sometime. All right. Well, enough talking about food. I'm really hungry. It's lunchtime and I'm past my lunch. So this has not helped, but, uh, anyway, thank you for coming on. It, uh, it was good to finally be able to get you on. I know we were scheduled a while ago, but you, you got sick. If I remember correctly, as, Happens yeah, quite a bit. I'm sorry about that. No, no, it's not your not your fault. It's good that we finally got you on to talk about uh, V Validate for sure. I know it's something I've looked at and haven't actually used before, uh, but uh, definitely have to give it a try. Um, thank you, David, for joining us. Uh, My pleasure for the addition of the jokes. It always makes the show better. And we'll say goodbye for now and talk at you next time on Views on View. <laughs> <laughs>